0: Welcome to the Better Man Clinics, the podcast where we talk to actual experts to address the questions that men want answered, but are either too embarrassed to ask or simply don't know who to ask. Before we get started, I do want to caution that the conversations on this podcast are for informational purposes only. They don't represent a medical consultation, nor do they present medical advice to individuals. Rather, we hope that the podcast empowers men with the knowledge and confidence to address these issues with their healthcare providers. As with any medical or wellness issues, you should always consult with your healthcare provider before beginning any type of treatment or preventative intervention. With that being said, in this episode, we discuss back pain. Do you know that back pain affects 80% of Americans at some point in their lives? And that 30% of all Americans will experience back pain in just the next three months? For some men, back pain can be truly debilitating and prevents them from enjoying their favorite activities, going to work or even getting out of bed. So what causes back pain? Can you prevent it? What home remedies are worth trying and when is it really time to see a doctor? And when you do see a doctor, what should you expect from the evaluation and what are the possible treatment options? To help us answer these questions, we turn to a true expert. Dr. Oren Gottfried is a professor and clinical vice chair of neurosurgery at Duke University specializing in spine surgery. Dr. Gottfried earned his medical degree from the University of Arizona and then completed his residency training in neurosurgery at the University of Utah. He then went on to complete fellowships in spinal deformities at the University of Utah and spinal oncology at Johns Hopkins University. Aside from his clinical responsibilities at Duke University, Dr. Godfrey also performs research focusing on the prevention of spinal deformity, infections, complications, and recurrent spinal disease by identifying and limiting patient and surgical risks. And now, I bring you our conversation with Dr. Oren Godfrey about the management of back pain. Hello, and welcome to Better Man Clinics. Today, we're going to be talking about back pain, which is a pretty big problem to a lot of men out there. You know, recently, I came across a statistic that was pretty startling, and it said that about 80% of Americans experience back pain at some point in their lives, and that about 30% of Americans will experience back pain in the next three months. I was pretty astounded by that. And, you know, especially because for some men, uh, back pain is a nuisance, it could be a little annoying, it might require a little over-the-counter medication, but for others, back pain can be pretty debilitating and it can keep them from, you know, enjoying their, their favorite activities, going to work, or for some people, even getting out of bed. So how do we manage back pain? What causes it? Can we prevent it? What are the appropriate steps to take at home if you experience it? And when is it time to call a doctor? And for that matter, what's the doctor going to do about it? To answer these questions and many more, we are very, very pleased to have joined us Dr. Oren Gottfried from Duke University. Dr. Gottfried is a board certified and licensed spine surgeon and also professor of neurosurgery over at Duke. Dr. Gottfried, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And we are very excited to hear from you about uh, a question that we hear all the time, which is about back pain. But before we get there, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Or I I know a bit about you, but I'd like our viewers to as well. One thing that caught my attention before we met is uh, on Twitter, you you have a Twitter account, a Twitter handle. And one thing that caught my eye is the passion with which you approach your profession as a neurosurgeon, both in terms of the details of surgery and your craft and the details of kind of the, the science behind it, but also to your approach to your patients that inevitably come to you with back pain and back-related problems. Uh, I was really uh, struck with, with the passion with which you approach that. So the, the first question I have for you is, what led you down this path? What inspired you to become a spine surgeon, a neurosurgeon? Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit more about that, if you would.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to have a, a service I could offer people. Um, in general, neurosurgery seemed like a, a field where the, there are immense challenges, but there's also the ability to make a positive impact on a lot of people's lives. In general, I felt like spine allowed me that possibility, where an intervention, whether it's me just talking to someone or offering potentially a treatment option, or rarely when it actually involves surgery, Through one of those mechanisms i could actually do something useful for my patient and um, over my career just listening to people is probably the most important part of all of our jobs as physicians not just as surgeons and i enjoy just trying to figure out what is it exactly that i can help with or realizing sometimes my only role is just to be there to you know get them on to the the next level of treatment Um, but i thank you for recognizing the passion i feel like we as physicians need to be our patient's advocate. And some of that comes out in some of the messages I'd like to show on social media.
0: Clearly does, it's very inspirational. And I think your, your patients are, are lucky to, to have you, that's for sure. If, if, if your bedside manner is anything along the lines of the passion you show uh, on Twitter, for sure. Now let's dive in a little bit into back pain. Uh, The back, the spine is a very complicated part of the body. So I, I don't wanna belittle and simplify things too much, but on a high level, can you share with us some of the common conditions that you see that may cause back pain in people?
1: Yes, I mean, in general, I think that just to get into what is the actual cause of most people's back pain, Obviously, there could be an element of trauma, and it could be a minor trauma, it could be repetitive trauma, it could be a history of some big incident, whether it was a sporting event or a motor vehicle um, collision or a fall. And then there's also the, just the common factor that as we age, there's going to be some age-related degenerative findings. But when patients see me, I'm usually not seeing the age-related degeneration. I'm seeing accelerated, something that's more active or more progressive or more degenerative. So in general, most of it comes down to what happened recently. I'd like to know when someone started their symptoms, did they have actual an event or was it a slow progression that got to this point where it's severe? Uh, Many times, obviously it's gonna be muscular or something, a soft tissue issue. Sometimes, you know, for patients that refer to me, there's usually an imaging correlate. So something was found on a particular CT x-ray or MRI. At that point, obviously, it's going to be more than just muscular soft tissue. It's going to be skeletal or the soft tissues within the spine, whether it's extra ligament that's impinging inward and causing some pressure, or as most people reference, their herniated disc. So obviously a lot of what I do is dealing with the pinching from the arthritis, from the degeneration, but I see it all as a continuum, a spectrum. And usually by the time someone sees a surgeon, it's pretty severe in there, but I'm you know, equally as likely to show the same level of care for someone that has mild findings, because it doesn't matter if it's mild or severe on the imaging, what matters is how it makes you feel. And patients that are seeing me are not feeling good. You don't go to a surgeon just because, and these are people that you mentioned, just getting out of bed, just doing activities with loved ones, just trying to get through the weekend or the work week. And they're very impacted when their back or their spine is not behaving.
0: Um, It's very debilitating, unfortunately. No, for for sure. And just to clarify, when you say degenerative disease, do you mean things uh, conditions like arthritis? Is that what you mean by degenerative disease or things that break down the the bone over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I tend to use that degenerative word you know, consistent with um, arthritis. I feel like when you say the word arthritis to maybe a clinician, we have a sense of what the joints might look like. You say arthritis to a patient and you think of kind of the aching and maybe not as severe, even though aching can get to severe. So I tend to like to use terms that give a mental image. So yes, mm-hmm. degenerative to me means that it was built a certain way And then, unfortunately, it's going backwards or going in a new path that's not as robust or not as structurally sound or just rough around the edges.
0: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Now, if we're talking about risks, I mean, obviously, if somebody has a trauma, you know, there's only so so much level they can control. But are certain men more prone to back pain than others?
1: Well, I feel like I might look at that question in two different directions. I feel that so many people are asked on a daily basis to do things that are physically complex and difficult on their body. I feel like almost every job should come with an ergonomics expert. I mean, I think many jobs today realize that, but I feel like we put our own bodies through repetitive stress on a daily basis. So I can only use my own example before I use my patients, but when I do surgery, My mind is on the patient's health, but I will find myself in positions that aren't natural for my body. Because I care about my patient, I'll put aside my own issues to do things for the the betterment of my patient's health, but for my longevity, I should be aware of postural issues. So I would say in all types of work, life, things we enjoy doing, there may be a better way to do it. And that kind of gets into a core idea And I feel like almost every individual could benefit from occupational health and physical therapy because we could all do what we do that we're going to do anyways, but do it better. So um, specifically to your question, I feel that when we reflect on where this patient came from, what they have done, people just put their body on the line and not even realized it for years. So many times the common denominator is the type of work that person did. Or I see a lot of veterans and the type of work they did in the military was quite stressful on their body or former athletes. And again, they did it because it was the thing that they needed to do and they were doing it well. But later in life, sometimes the body just doesn't handle the stressors we put on it earlier.
0: You no, know, th- that's a good point. And posture and, and ergonomics is brought up a lot when it when it comes to back pain uh, on a high level. Is there any resource that uh, that uh, men can go to to say, OK, to even determine if they are ergonomically appropriate at work or otherwise?
1: Well, I think a well run company or process would have you know human resources available that could assess, again, for the longevity of an employee doing things in ways that aren't going to hurt their body and lead to future downtime would be just plain productive. But I would say that everybody could look into the resources if they're involved in a bigger company. I I believe that that would be there. Alternatively, Mm -hmm. patients, you know, people who have symptoms go see their primary care physician. And I would encourage when the resource is there to do a session of physical therapy, to work with an occupational therapist. And I don't always say that people need to do that for three to six months, sometimes it's just a single consult. Um, These days, a lot of those consults actually can be done virtually. It's not as good to not be able to do an exam on your patient, but you could get some tips on how to do things well. So a resource could be just seeing on your yearly physical exam, talking to your primary care about it. Um, Online, I would trust the, the big academies of physical therapy and occupational therapy. So to actually look at at a reference, I would go right to the, the largest associations for physical therapy and see if they have some basic recommendations. But there's nothing better than actually working with the expert. And I mean, people will pay good money to go get a trainer at the gym. And I feel like the parallel would be to have a physical therapist, occupational therapist for life. It's not just for exercise and achieving that goal. It's achieving happiness in life. So I think it in the future, I mean, I hope there continues to be good numbers of PTOTs, you know, all around so we all
0: have access to the that's such a good point. <clears throat> you know, when people go to their yearly physical and they go to their primary doctor, they may mention they have back pain, you know, they might be given some hints about, oh, take these, you know, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories or whatnot, but very rarely do we get to the root of the issue and actually, um, you know, get help as to how to prevent it. And I think that that's a great recommendation to ask that primary care doctor, you know, is it possible to refer me to a physical therapist or occupational therapist for that consultation? I think that's very empowering and that can that provides a lot of information that can, they might be doing the same thing over over and over again, that's wrong. And that's impacting their back negatively. Yeah. And just yeah. one other point,
1: I wouldn't want to minimize um, that some primary care doctors are actually excellent at back pain because it's such a common thing. So it may be even a one-stop shop where the, the primary care doctor actually leaves in a certain physical therapy regimen that has worked for their patient population and could even recommend it. So sorry to interrupt. I just, I didn't yeah. want to take the, the highlight away from our great primary care physicians. And some of them are are actually avid experts at treating back pain. And I enjoy that because my role can be focused on the things I'm, you know, better at, and they're actually you know, treating a, a large population
0: quite nicely. You know, it's a very good point. It's a very good, We can't give them enough credit for that. That's for sure. So I want to I want to jump into <clears throat> some of the causes of back pain as a not to, not as an academic exercise, but more as what can men potentially reverse. Right. One of the things you mentioned, you know, brought up an important point was ergonomics, posture. We talked about that to some extent. I'm going to list off a couple of others just to get your thoughts about it because these are some reversible things, and I want I'd like to know to what impact uh, or what impact these these features have on. On back pain. The one that comes up a lot is obesity. What role does that play in back pain, if any? Well, I feel in
1: general, there are studies that show a certain cutoff, but more important to me is what is someone's personal ideal weight? And I think we're all aware when it might be, there may be a mismatch between what's ideal for us and where we're at. And so a very healthy, you know, integrated health type regimen that looks at you know, not just exercise, but nutritional intake, any other modifiable behaviors or modifiable illnesses. So in general, it does have an impact. And, the, you know, we've all read studies like 10 pounds puts this level of stress on your hip joint, your knees. I feel like I don't know the exact number for the spine. I haven't read a good study on that, but I feel like for every five or 10 pounds, one's able to lose. That is in excess of what their ideal joints and body can handle would take away stress so i do get asked the question often i do see patients that are actually in the process of you know weight loss type surgery bypass and they do ask me am i going to be able to reverse everything i see on this mri my personal and professional opinion is maybe not reverse the findings but definitely prevent the progression so i think you could slow down the progression unfortunately Probably some of the damage is already done, but again, thinking about our patients in terms of longevity, I I don't want them to get to the point where they're having to have a surgery down the road. If they're at a moderate place with their spine illness and get the weight loss surgery or have other non-operative mechanisms to lose weight, I think it could be a win for their spinal
0: health. You know, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's it's not binary, but every little bit helps to to help them in the long run. Yes. What about smoking? I mean, smoking is the is the boogeyman across medicine for sure. And, and mm-hmm. I'd like to know to what role does that play? What role does that play? I should say in back pain and back problems, if any.
1: I wish I could have a very precise answer, but we do looking at the the data. We do see that the ability to heal from spinal episodes, whatever symptoms someone has the body's just not as resilient. And it'd be nice to be able to describe why the microvascular issues are contributing. I don't really fully know that, I don't think we do. And also just healing from surgery, our success rate doing the right surgery on the right patient at the right time, unfortunately takes a hit. And the the things that I like to tell my patients are the goals we may not achieve. And this might be surprising, but sometimes it's even the neurological recovery. You take a compressed nerve and you decompress it, and you would hope that at three months, twelve months, there's an expected return on improvement. And sometimes, with um, high levels of smoking—not just like a cigarette a day—sometimes we just don't see the resilience in the body. So I think probably the non-operative follows a similar pattern where we just can't predict normal recovery. And you know, you mentioned obesity, you mentioned smoking, and there's several other factors that. It's just, it's not ideal when we see them because we can't predict the rate of improvement as well.
0: Got it. No, that, that's, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, What about exercise, specifically the lack of exercise that's been cited a lot in terms of promoting back pain. Have you found that to be the case? And if so, why?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing about exercise is the, the, the lack of exercise and that process, because it's almost like there's a a circular issue going on. You're in a lot of pain. You want to exercise. You want to eat better, but you're in a lot of pain. So you're not exercising. You're not eating well. You're not taking care of yourself. And really, unfortunately, I see that pattern quite often. And my patient will tell me, I've gained weight. You can actually see on MRIs, not directly from inactivity for a few years, but we do see muscle atrophy. So the mm-hmm. same person, you know, in an MRI, I might see that the, the muscles around their spine just aren't robust or they have infiltration of bad. I don't know the chicken and the egg, but I just know the outcome. And then it's just a process that's terribly hard to get out of. I mean, when I'm seeing that patient or seeing it across from me, I'm you know, very sympathetic to how this is, how are we going to get them out of this phase in their life? And usually doing some physical therapy, getting them more active, seeing if there's a reversible condition or at least a treatable condition. Um, But it's very difficult. On the other hand, I have patients that have exercised their whole life. They have very strong muscles everywhere. Even the back looks strong and they still have spinal disease. So I don't feel for any individual, I can predict the outcome based on their activity or inactivity, but I see both populations. The person that can't exercise the person that wants to exercise, that's actually the goal of their care is to get back to I don't know, martial arts or just biking or golf is a common one for a lot of my patients. They want to get it back to their their golf game that they had years ago. And, you know, for me, the goal is whatever their goal is. So whatever they want to get to, that's where I need to try to get them to.
0: That's a great segue, actually. So because you mentioned a lot of different activities. Uh, uh, you know, assuming we're pre-treatment, right? Are there any specific activities that men should potentially avoid so as to not make their back pain worse? Do certain activities inflame or impact the back more than others?
1: Interestingly, I can't ever say one activity is is the inflictor for that person. What I would do with each individual case, what I do is to go into their history And find out what they like to do, what they like to do before this back issue, what they're not doing now, what they're still doing now and how that impacts them. So if someone tells me I like to run, but when I run, I'm, you know, in the bed for the next two days. Unfortunately, you know, at the current time, I can't tell them to go run, but I now know what our goals are because I want to get them back to running. Um, So in general, there's no one activity. I tell people like jumping from planes, definitely don't do that. And I have a number of veterans, that's exactly what they did. So I know that's just tough on everybody's back. I don't think it's the jumping, obviously it's landing, but in general, I know that that's never been kind to anybody's back, but I really don't know any other activity because I have patients that tell me one activity that hurts someone else is what makes them feel good. Like Mm -hmm. I like to go hiking, they say, and I actually feel my back feels better. So I need to really understand the temporal relation the temporal and the physical activity associated with it because I can't really do a one size fits all. Um, But in general, I try to find what is the activity that's generating the pain. And we work backwards and see how can we get back to that and how do we heal things so they can actually enjoy that in the future.
0: No, that makes sense. And in a similar vein, this might be the same answer, though. But what we recently did a podcast on knee pain, and we spoke to an orthopedic surgeon. He mentioned that, like, you know, when you're in the gym, avoid these particular exercises. Is it the same with the back or the same idea? It's basically, it's really not one specific exercise that should be avoided when they're in the gym, for instance.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's hard to predict. So if someone has facet mediated pain, so you know, the facet like joint's in the back of the spine. When one extends, they're going to feel the pain. Whereas mm-hmm. if someone has a disc issue, which is in front of the spine, they may feel p- pain going flexion. So I can't even you know, tell someone, don't do flexion, don't do extension. You know, They might actually, many people have both issues. It hurts to go to any direction. Mm-hmm. So I guess my job becomes then finding what they can do. I want people to have healthy cores. So mm-hmm. I look at it as we're built, we have a skeletal you know, soft tissue system that holds us up. And then we have a bunch of muscles. And I feel like if you don't have a healthy core, then all of the stress of our day, of our work, of our activities is put on the skeleton, you know, the actual spine itself. So, I mean, if there's any way I can, you know, impact my patients to build their core, not on their own and going to the gym, again, with physical therapy, with, you know, structured exercise, structured activity, then we're, take, we're offsetting some of the load on their ailing or painful spine.
0: That actually brings it together nicely, because, again, that's the whole concept of exercise and strengthening, right, is because you're, you're focusing some of that pressure off of the spine itself and putting it on the surrounding muscles and soft tissues to take some of that, excuse me, <clears throat> impact away. Is, is that correct? Exactly. Perfect. So we're, we're going to talk about more chronic back pain in a minute but one thing that's uh, that I always like to point out is red flags so if somebody if a guy is having back pain as a as a, a spine surgeon what are those red flags that you're looking for that makes them say not only should you see a doctor but you should see somebody now
1: yeah i mean there the red flags is it's a very important part of what i do and what people with spine issues should be aware of i mean 100% if there's a neurological symptom sometimes it, it's back pain for years and then one day it starts with radiating pain or a burning pain or electrical you know, electrical socket. Like when you touch something you shouldn't have to touch. So starting to get neurological symptoms to me is now taking this from a possible degenerative or arthritic process to actually neurological compromise. So it could be pain, it could be numbness, new numbness in the toes or anywhere in the legs. Um, Additionally, it could be weakness. A common issue is having a herniated disc or a process in the lower lumbar. And people say the foot drops or I catch it on the carpet or I just can't lift it up or I can't stand on my toes or heels. So if anybody with a back condition, and I don't wanna be an alarmist and have everybody worry, but anybody with a back condition might wanna take an inventory of any numbness, any burning pain, any weakness, Um, changes of gait like someone a loved one says they're walking differently they seem to lean into a shopping cart as a common description for a neurological issue it's called neurogenic claudication so gait or not being able to tolerate walking as long of a distance those are kind of like taking things from back issues to neurological stenosis but other red flags are also going to be things that are not degenerative. So if someone had unfortunately a cancer that spread to their spine, you know, that may manifest with neurological symptoms. And that's why patients need to be checked out. Or if someone had an infection that has spread to the spine, they might be a, a patient that has poorly controlled diabetes and they're prone to infections. Well in that particular patient population, back a nuance of back pain without a trauma could be very worrisome. Additionally, some people have poor bone density. You know, if we have rigid, strong bones, we can tolerate a lot, but some people do something and it's just back pain, but it turns out to be a fracture. So those are kind of like the symptoms as well as some of the illnesses
0: that we never want to miss. Got it. No, that's critical to know because you really want to know that the big line in the sand is, you know what, can I try some things at home or this, this requires, uh, you know, urgent medical attention. Now putting the urgent stuff aside, let's go to the more mundane, right? So somebody has mild or moderate back pain, they wake up in the morning and say, oh man, that wasn't good. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of, if you will, some of those home remedies? Uh, basically, I'd love to hear just like on the top of your, uh, from the top of your head, what are your usual go-tos? And then maybe we can jump through some others as well.
1: Yeah, so I mean, first line to me is to take an inventory. Just as a person, look at what you did in the last day, what you did in the last week, anything you've done differently in the last several weeks. Most people can identify a specific activity that was a little bit different than the routine. I hear often that someone did some yard work, whether it's working the garden or lawnmower, someone's done something a little differently. Maybe they sat for longer. So just taking the inventory and realizing what could have been the generator of the pain. But in general, assuming we're talking about a large population that doesn't have a specific reason why they can't take certain meds, I consider Tylenol. I mean, anytime I tell someone in severe pain or ask them about their Tylenol use, I get a, sometimes a weird look like, really? Tylenol is going to work for my back? And of course, it might not have the efficacy of some of the stronger medications, but I, I'd like to know they've tried it. Um, mm-hmm. And I might be taking a full 500 milligrams at a time or a thousand. Understanding every doctor is going to tell them, don't take more than 3,000. And also I want to know if you know, they've ever had an issue with liver or anything like that. Um, Motrin, you know, just simply, everybody knows Motrin comes in 200 and you can take 800 three times a day. Again, I'm always going to ask the patient about their kidney function or look in the chart, make sure there's not a heart disease issue or, you know, most importantly, a a gastric or duodenal issue, history of ulcers. But I truly believe a short course of ibuprofen 800 two to three times a day for a few days, in isolation of not having any of these side effects is very effective. And Mm -hmm. so most people, by the time they've seen the primary care doctor or after they've seen the primary care doctor, got started on a non-steroidal. And Mm -hmm. I find that regimen, some rest, not doing the activity that's causing the problem. Tylenol and Motrin are usually what I would expect for patients without a neurological issue. And that could be, you know, a trial for two to four weeks. And very effective for you mentioned the 80% of people in this country are going to have a flare at some point. I would hope that they've done these basic things. And if not, then it's opportunity for us as physicians to educate.
0: Uh, that that's very helpful i want to get your take on some of the things we see in the supermarket uh, aside from those obvious you know like Tylenol and Motrin one of the things we see a lot a lot of ads for are lidocaine patches and creams and icy hots and and salon paws and all those kind of things what are your take on the efficacy of those for back pain
1: yeah i mean in general the non-steroidal roll-on items I have a feeling, you know, there's patients that can't tolerate non-steroidals for the reasons we just spoke about, and the dosing is so much less. So I think that would be worthwhile. I don't know that for any reason the lidocaine would have absorption into the deep muscles or the locations, but I do believe strongly, and I can tell you why, into the idea of um, diversion where, like, if you do something that doesn't make you feel one thing, you can actually, you can go on with life. So I mean, there's a whole concept of how do you use electrical stimulation to help back issues and an example is a TENS unit, but Mm -hmm. a fancy example is a spinal cord stimulator. And the whole idea is you're altering how the sensation of pain is getting into the spinal cord and getting into the brain. So I do feel anything that could, you know, people put some, you know, like the hot sauce cream, you know, the chili pepper cream, I, I truly understand how it could work. It's just not direct. It's not directly working on the pain issue, but it is making life bearable. So I think everything's worth it, but I think people need to look at the underlying problem. And that's a very short-term solution, but I'd like to also help patients get a
0: long-term solution. Got it. No, that, that actually, so it's kind of interesting. It's just diverting. I, I had the same thought, like, you know, the topical lidocaine on the skin, I'm not sure how that's going to affect, you know, nerve roots in, in the spine. But yeah. uh, I think it makes sense. It's kind of if nothing, it's kind of diverting a little bit uh, of the of the body's attention there. Now, another thing I want to ask you about in terms of over the counter stuff that you, you may or may not be familiar with, but I just want to throw it out there is dietary supplements. Because uh, there, there's a million of them out there. And I'm just going to mention some of the ones that I came across just doing a routine search was uh msm which is methyl sulfonyl methane coq10 magnesium turmeric devil's claw willow bark Uh, i'm not going to go one by one with these with you but overall in terms of these supplements do they make a dent into back pain are they even worth considering so my answer
1: as a physician would be i wouldn't want anybody to spend their hard-earned money on anything i'm a I'm an efficacy person. You know, if you're going to put any effort, my patient's going to put any effort into something, it better have a good um, rate of return. So I don't want anybody to spend any money on things because people are desperate. They're in pain. You know, they'll talk to a family member who something worked on the family member. Now, granted, they probably don't have the same genetics or the same exact response, but people are going to listen to their friends and family over anything. I just don't want people to put a lot of effort into something that didn't work. Now my counter argument is for everything you just named, I have a patient who tells me that's the only thing that worked. And something that's becoming very popular is um, hemp related products, CBD products. I have many patients that told me it worked. Now I'm gonna admit it's not gonna be for severe spinal compression on their nerves, but it could be for back pain, it could be for an issue. It just helps make their symptoms a little bit better. So I think for serious illness, people shouldn't avoid seeing their physician to get worked up and treated. But I think for symptomatic control, when you're in pain, you know you do have to do things that work. So if something's worked in the past, I definitely don't want to tell my patient, oh, go stop what you've been doing for a year. I know the truth is it works for that person. So I have to have a very individualized approach and I have to remain open-minded that modern medicine doesn't exclude or preclude the use of things that I don't understand. And so even though I don't understand acupuncture, I think it's a great resource. And when other things have been exhausted, even though I can't explain how exactly it works, and I've been given lectures, many lectures over the years, I just don't explain it, I still would encourage it for the right patient.
0: That's that's a a very honest assessment. And I think it's a fair one, for sure. Now, you actually mentioned a couple of what are considered, I guess, alternative medicines or alternative treatments uh, for back pain and other problems. I want to walk through them because oftentimes guys will go for the alternative before the mainstream. Uh, so I want to just get your thoughts on uh, some of these. The first one that comes up, uh, you know, in most people's minds is a chiropractor, right? They, your, your back hurts, they readjust some vertebrae and, and everything is supposed to get better. What, your, been, what has been your experience in, you, in yourself and your patients in terms of chiropractic Factors in terms of helping with back pain? Um, I value
1: um, chiropractors in the algorithm. I mean, we have a, a program at Duke University It's kind of like, who is the first line for back conditions? And we feel strongly it's primary care, physical therapy, and actually chiropractic care. Mm-hmm. So in general, we even have our algorithm that the first line is to go through these experts because they have a very good understanding when to triage. So I think it's very valuable. I feel like there's some crossover these days between physical therapy and chiropractic care where physical therapists have some spinal manipulative care that they can do, you know, where they have, they can, you know, it's a a very fancy, you know, way to treat because it's actually hands-on. That's probably the, even the greatest part, even better than things I do in surgery. Um, But then also many chiropractors have really good understanding of physical therapy work as well. So there's more crossover these days. Um, but in general, we do value, you know, more active exercises, I think things that are done to people are good, you know, if there's something to, to, manip- you know, manipulate the joints or do things to make things feel better, but it's also good to teach active exercises. So I feel like both fields are, you know, moving in that direction, where it's more active therapy than just passively moving people around.
0: And would the physical therapist be the one that that use the TENS units as well that you were mentioning? I mean, some,
1: some physical therapists do electrical E-STEM, specifically if someone has a motor deficit, they have weakness. Um, I'm not sure if it's, it's part of an everyday regimen. I feel like each physical therapist, just like I do a set of surgeries, I feel like each physical therapist has a, a set of tools. Each chiropractor has a set of tools. I'm not sure that the TENS unit is part of that, but I do feel like we all recommend TENS units because, you know, they do have some
0: efficacy for specific patient populations. Got it. And uh, you mentioned acupuncture as well. I'm not sure about how it works, but it does seem to be helping some patients in terms of the chronic back pain.
1: Correct. Yeah, and many times um, at major institutions, at least we have several of our physiatrists at Duke University are also trained and licensed to practice, ac- you know, do acupuncture. So um, it's just nice when you have people that have multiple points of expertise, because that individual can then offer, we'll try this and we'll try that. Um, so I work with quite a few individuals that have several skills. I think that's nice for the holistic approach to the patient, but it's also okay to, we're going to try this regimen, and then we're going to go to another expert. I just, I feel a bit sad for spine care in that it, sometimes it takes people having five or six or seven visits with different providers before they find their treatment. So as a spine surgeon, if someone's referred to me, I really take an inventory of what they've done already. But I also want to be kind of the, the one stop. I want to kind of figure this out for them and not have them going in this loop. And I'm sure there are patients that are very effectively treated and they're out of the loop. They're back to life. But my job that I feel very strongly about it, is getting people out of this loop of this cycle and getting them back to health.
0: So that's an important point. I want to take a step back. So it seems like a lot of these different, quote unquote, alternative treatments have benefits. Um, but it seems like there's specific indications for some versus others. And you had mentioned, like, for instance, a Duke, you have an algorithm. Does it make more sense? And, and I'm going to take one more step back. A lot of guys, before they'll go to the doctor, they're going to try some things out. They'll go to a chiropractor. They'll go to acupuncturist. Maybe they'll somehow see a physical therapist, et cetera. Does it make more sense to see their primary care physician or another type of physician to play quarterback and kind of guide them which of these alternative treatments to go to when versus just trying it yourself and just knocking them off the list? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, just um, someone within the system, I I feel like no matter how wise a patient is, their loved one is, you know, many times it's not just a patient, but it's a, a family effort. Um, no matter how wise someone is about it, there are a bunch of dead ends. So I feel like people do need an advocate. And sometimes the advocate is the family member, but if, when it's not the family member, then maybe it is the primary care doctor or just people meet a specific clinician along the way, and that's their advocate. So I just want everyone to have an advocate, whether it is a primary care doctor or it's a family member that does a lot of the phone calls and scheduling and gets the, the visit scooted up because they, they know how to, you know, make that call when it's needed, get on a cancel list, you know, everybody needs an advocate. So I'd feel best if everyone had someone rooting for them, that it wasn't just one person taking on back pain. Got it.
0: Got it. So one of the things that um, one of the purposes of this podcast is that guys are very reluctant to go see the doctor. And one of the reasons why they're reluctant is they have a lot of concern about what's going to happen. At that doctor's visit, so let's say again, I'm I'm a, a guy. Uh, I've taken you know I have some back pain. I've tried the simple things. I've tried some Tylenol and Motrin, and maybe I've even gone to a chiropractor. Nothing's working. I'm now going to go see a doctor, and that doctor can either be a primary doctor or maybe a, a specialist in the back. What do I expect for that initial evaluation when I go see the doctor?
1: Yeah, a yeah. big element is what imaging has been done. So. It is surprising sometimes to patients that we can't figure it all out just by talking. You know, we're all told as physicians and clinicians, take a good history, do a good exam. But there is an element where that is a, that's a lot of information, but that's not going to tell us the, what actually needs to be done. So I would say to that person, to these patients, some imaging. So if they're going to talk about their back and they've never had an x-ray, Well, once you've done some of those mechanisms, you know, some of the treatments like the Tylenol Motrin, some therapy, you definitely need an x-ray. And, you know, we're starting with the x-ray to look if there's any structural issues in the skeleton itself in the bones in the spine. X-rays can also show if there's instability. I like to say, here's the spine. And when you lean forward, it should be moving as a unit, but sometimes it's slipping. You know, there's a spondylolisthesis or someone has a scoliosis where the spine's curved. So, At the least, they could expect to get some simple x-rays. They could expect to get listened to, you know, be prepared to discuss when did this first start and when did the symptoms change? And sometimes the patient, it's difficult. They just want to tell me their leg hurts. And I say, which part? And, you know, the more they can tell me, oh, yeah, a lot of the referred pain in the back is in the bottom. You know, people don't like to say, I have pain in my bottom. You know, I have pain in my thigh. People don't like to talk about their pain. So sometimes it's difficult because the same questions that have worked for hundreds if not thousands of other patients, that particular patient doesn't know how to verbalize or doesn't feel comfortable. So I have to make a comfortable environment where the goal is stated right from the beginning. I wanna get you out of pain. I wanna get this process better. Um, And then hopefully my patient can open up and the more they can tell me about any symptoms that are referred, how it impacts their life, um, be prepared for an exam where we're gonna push on every joint um, when I'm doing that, I'm I'm aware that I could be hurting the patient. So communicating to me, oh, that move hurts. You know, be prepared to be watched walking. I mean, it helps if I just examine someone in an examination room and I don't see them walk. I don't, I really don't know how it's functionally affecting them, but just watching them walk down the hallway helps a bit. So those are the kind of things. Be prepared for you know detailed history, detailed exam, some imaging. And then unfortunately, when someone has neurological symptoms, the x-ray is not adequate and we actually need an MRI. And I can imagine why people would fear an MRI, not just for the cost, they're sometimes out-of-pocket expenses, but also just the inconvenience of having to stay in a loud machine that some people get claustrophobic or uncomfortable sitting still for 30 minutes. So yeah. um, these are not everybody needs an MRI. That's actually a big point. Um, there has been an emphasis on going right to the most expensive treatment or test. Not everybody needs an MRI, just like not everybody needs a surgery. I think when you discuss men, you know, not wanting to go to the appointment or having some fear, they have there would be this fear that they're going to go in there and be told they need major surgery. And that could affect, how am I going to take time off work? How am I going to, you know, do all these things I need to do? We have a family trip plan. I mean, it's just like a surgery is quite disruptive when it's not, you know, in and out type surgery, which spine is not often in and out type surgery. So I, I, I recognize that there's a lot of, you know, anxiety and buildup before these appointments. And that's where I want to really understand why this person, you know, was worried. So I can try to at least attempt to alleviate those concerns.
0: No, that, that, that's very, very helpful, actually. And again, it doesn't sound like an exam. is uh, it, The visit's too traumatic or too uh, invasive, which is certainly be reassuring to our listeners and viewers. Now, um, let's say you've done that evaluation. We've come to a conclusion. Uh, there's going to be, it's kind of a little bit of a choose your own adventure. There's a few scenarios that this might, uh, that the initial consultation might lead to. I want to walk through some of them. So one is, are prescription medications often or ever the solution uh, coming out of this. Uh, Some prescription medications that come up a lot with pain and specifically back pain, we're talking about muscle relaxants, we're talking about narcotics, we're talking about even antidepressants. To what extent does prescription medication play a role in management of this back pain long-term? Well, I think that, I mean,
1: that's the key, the long-term. I think when you go see a clinician, you're you're talking about both what are we gonna do in the short-term and then also long-term. I mean, there are some very effective medications for neurological pain, like the burning pain I spoke of, like mm-hmm. gabapentin, Neurontin, there's Lyrica. Sometimes we do get into other classes of medications, um, like Cymbalta, you know, it is an antidepressant med, but it also helps for neurological symptoms. There's meds like Tramadol. So there are non-narcotic pain medications that are actually quite effective for these kinds of issues.
0: Mm-hmm. But I look at
1: medication as a short-term option. I think we're trying to, treat the symptoms while we're trying to establish a a durable treatment. So I don't look at medications like I'm starting what this person on this medication, I want them to take it for life. I'm telling them I want to do this in the short term because there's no reason to suffer. Um, We have to be very cognizant of side effects because when the side effects outweigh the the benefit is like, that's a, you know, not comfortable situation, but I'm also saying we're actually looking for the durable solution, which could be an intervention like a, epidural steroid or it could be some kind of other shot or rarely it could actually be surgery where I'm able to give an attempt to treat the problem that exists and try to go back to a point in life when that issue wasn't causing symptoms.
0: Got it. So a bridge, not, not a solution, but by the things Now we talked about physical therapy a bit. Uh, I'd like to kind of expand that a little bit, just in terms of expectations. You went to your doctor, the doctor examined, you said nothing too serious. Let's try a course of physical therapy. What does that entail? What are we doing for how long, how durable? Correct. I mean, in general, I mean, the first
1: thing I would always admit, no matter who you see that recommends the therapy, we're going to want that therapist to be close to home. So at Duke, I see many patients that are coming, unfortunately, from three or four or more hours away. First of all, you need a physical therapist that's close. You cannot drive three hours, three times Mm -hmm. a week. But in general, the arrangement, what I usually ask my patient to at least consider is the initial consult. Go meet with a physical therapist. It's usually, uh, as far as I can tell, a one-hour consultation. And then they're going to come up with a regimen. And that regimen could be two weeks of therapy, it could be six weeks, it could be three months, it could be ongoing. Um, And then there's also an element of we don't know the future. So let's see how it goes. But many times it's one to two to three times per week. Uh, Most people work, most people have many obligations. Um, So we're not asking someone to go move into rehab and, you know, work 24-7 for weeks. It's usually committing two or three times. For my patients that actually have tough hours, work a lot, it might just be going once a week after work. But just keeping that regimen going, having the therapist guide the person and get them through it. No matter how many times I'm told by patients that they don't believe this is going to work, I have so many patients that six weeks of physical therapy and non-steroidal help them. Now, I know they could have another episodic flare down the road, but what we're talking about is this flare. And then if someone has recurrent flares, maybe we need something more durable. But I truly believe in the impact of physical therapy as well as the chiropractic care
0: and these other modalities. That's that's excellent. Um, You mentioned one, as when we were talking a minute ago, you mentioned cortisone shots. And I want to use that as the as our segue to talk about some of the minimally invasive treatments, like once we've, let's even gotten past physical therapy, or in conjunction physical therapy, before we talk about true surgery, some of these minimally invasive treatments like cortisone shots, um, what's involved? What are the risks? How long do they how effective are they? And how long would they last? And yeah, in general, I want to
1: differentiate it from what a, maybe a sports medicine or a primary care physician does. So what just to start on the spectrum, one can inject you know, some steroid of sorts into the muscles itself, or someone could do trigger point injections where they're injecting a series of spots, potentially with lidocaine or a derivative, a, a block, or some steroid. So I want to differentiate those treatments from what a trained specialist And it can be a pain anesthesia, spine specialist, or it could be a physiatrist. I don't Mm -hmm. think a lot of people even understand. uh, People all know that there are surgeons that work on the spine. But something I'd like to impact any viewers to to say that there are physiatrists, that's a medical specialty. You know, they completed their medical school and then they go do a residency in physiatry. And then they do many times another year of spine interventions where they're learning the specifics of these injections. So I like to categorize that there's injections that go around nerves that um, involve putting in some steroid and some block, but the way they get to the nerves, you can go to any spinal level. So if I n- identify a problem at four or five, lumbar four or five on the right, I could kindly ask a physiatrist or a pain anesthesia specialist to put the steroid right at that location. Mm-hmm. Just to take it into one level of detail more, The doctor can actually put the medication right in the center, or it can actually go on the side. So there's different ways to do it, but the common denominator, it's gonna be done with fluoroscopy. So real-time x-rays, patients wanna know, you're gonna put a needle around my nerves blindly? Well, I mean, there are actually people that can do that accurately. There are landmarks and ways to do it, but how it's done in modern times is with an x-ray, a live x-ray machine and every time the needle is advanced, it's based on an anatomical target that's seen on the x-ray, so it's quite precise, um, but how does that appear to a patient? They come into clinic, they work with the doctor that's going to do the procedure, they sign a consent, they go to a procedure suite that has x-rays, the skin is numbed up, and then the needle is advanced, so it's not like a needle's just put in the back, you know, cold, it's actually numbed up, and it's advanced, but what's happening is some steroid and other medications are delivered right to the nerves. And what's happening from there, it's an anti-inflammatory. So many patients admit in the overall care that they maybe took some oral steroids, some Medral dose pack or prednisone. This is way more impactful because it's putting steroids in around the nerves in a one-time basis, but it could last for three to six months. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I feel like for the patient that already did therapy, did non-steroidals, maybe took oral steroids, maybe responded to oral steroids but only transiently they're actually an ideal candidate to reduce the inflammation with an injection and just one other caveat is someone can have another injection it's usually four injections in one location per year but if someone got a great benefit they could actually have a, a another intervention about three months
0: later and is that how long they last about three to four months in terms of efficacy or durability i should say
1: I like to define a good response as three to six months. I do have patients that get an injection every two years. They literally call me on the two year and say, may I have another injection? That's all it takes. So I have patients that get a response or I have the scenario where someone's in a bad flare and got an injection or two and is no longer in the flare. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at a patient's symptoms in terms of, what's going on right now, not trying to prevent flares in the future, but treating what's going on right now. If you reduce the inflammation, you can get people back to good. Um, the, the main thing is we're not fixing the anatomy. Patients want everything fixed on the inside and everything feeling good on the outside. Honestly, I want my patients to feel good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an ongoing issue on the back, but it's not hurting them right now, yes, there is a fear that it could hurt them down the fu- in the future. But there's also the fear that we do a surgery and another level hurts them. So it's, I understand there's not really a a hard endpoint to spinal disease, just because someone has a surgery, it doesn't end the cycle. It just treats the local issue. So in my mind, a happy patient without symptoms is our endpoint and not necessarily trying to fix everything I know is on their imaging
0: got it and that's a good point and so potentially these kind of shots could be a long-term solution depending on the severity and how frequently they get the flare and stuff but it's possible it's it's it can be a possible launch solution based on what you're saying
1: yes
0: um you had mentioned also another uh i guess we considered minimally invasive treatment is the implanted nerve stimulators can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah so as we talk about the continuum of care this is on You know, if we start on the left and we're working towards the right on the line, this is at the far end. So Mm -hmm. there are patients that have spinal nerve pain or severe back pain that we can't identify a source. Like their MRI doesn't show a clear pinched nerve, but they're still suffering. Their nerves may show on a nerve test that their nerves are altered. Um, In general, there are patients that had surgery and maybe something was helped, but they still have a nerve pain. So for these particular patients, it's not the big group, it's a very specialized group. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's actually a surgery, it's a procedure where you're putting electrodes around the spinal nerves, and you have a little external adjuster temporarily. And if it's a good fit, you actually get a permanent implant. So the actual test for the spinal cord stimulator is a procedure, not a surgery. But Mm -hmm. for the patients that it actually works, it's like, a wonder it's really good, they get 50% reduction in pain, they go on to a procedure. So I think that when we're talking about a step up approach, we can put the spinal cord stimulator on the line um, with surgeries, because it is more um, invasive. But for the right patient, I've had many patients that spinal cord stimulation was actually their final treatment, their
0: ideal treatment. Okay. No, that, that's actually a good point. Cause a lot of guys say this, oh, this sounds less involved than in surgery. Well, you know, why don't know why, why wouldn't I try that before? But that's a good point. It's not, it's not for all comers. And the, to that same extent, I have one other, before we jump into surgery is radiofrequency treatments or radiofrequency neurotomy. How does yeah. that fit into the picture or does yeah, So fit? when
1: we were talking about the um, epidural steroids, or they're also called select nerve root injections or transforaminal epidural steroids, um, there was another procedure. I, I was hoping you'd bring it up because I think it is important that, that, you know, on the overall care. So, I mean, there is the ability to determine based on physical exam and history that some of the pain could be mediated by the facet joint. The way I quickly describe anatomy is we have our discs in the front and we have facet joints in the back and that's how the spine articulates with the next level. There's a disc space, there's a facet joint. Well, some people have facet mediated pain the kind of quick and easy way to determine that is it hurts to extend it feels better i offset some of that pain in the back leaning forward well for those patients and granted there's better testing than just that simple thing i said you can actually inject the facet joint with either a lidocaine type medication or steroid there's formal ways of doing it but when you do a a true medial branch block it's called mbb the physiatrist or pain anesthesiologist is injecting the facet joint. And if someone gets relief for the next couple of hours, they may be a candidate for a radiofrequency ablation. And what that is, is actually ablating or burning the little pain fibers. Anytime I say burning a nerve, I expect my patients to look shocked. But we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about little, tiny, little tiny nerves, not the motor or sensory. But so, when that's done in the right patient, in the right circumstance, right level, Some people get two years of back pain relief. So it doesn't eliminate the nerve. I think it's shocking the nerve, so to speak. And they may need to have that done eventually. But anytime I could have my patient avoid any surgery with any of the things we talked about today, I'm pleased. And I really like when someone's done a step-up approach and they've gone through all these things. Now, I don't want their treatment to last forever. Last for years. And then we go do the right thing years later. I want to do this efficiently. But I feel appropriate treatment, you know, I feel it's an appropriate treatment for me to do surgery when people tried many of these things. And I just feel strongly that you can get someone out of this flare without surgery. And then for the patients that have a truly bad and upsetting issue in the actual back that have tried many of these things, you don't have to try everything, then I feel it's reasonable to consider surgery.
0: Perfect. And that's a perfect transition. So I was just going to ask you that, but it sounds like surgery is kind of like the end of the line where you've, you've tried the very simple things. You've tried the, the, what we call the alternative treatments. You've tried maybe some of the minimally based treatments, nothing's really working. And so now it's time to consider surgery. That's correct.
1: Correct. I mean, also, so that's a step up approach for the patient Mm -hmm. that has severe symptoms at the onset and when I say severe, I have to be careful because I mean, everybody might have severe pain, but I'm saying severe neurological symptoms, weakness, or bowel and bladder issues, control issues that are related, you know, or inability to tolerate walking. The step-up approach needs to be handled much quicker, mm-hmm. but I um, mean, and then I don't have to put them through every other step. So for this person who has a severe, severe issue on imaging and clinically, we might go quicker through the process, but so in the- general, oh,
0: sorry. I'm sorry, no, go ahead, I'm sorry, I apologize.
1: Oh, I just meant, but in general, yes, step-up approach and when the step-up approach doesn't work, and there's a treatable problem. I think an important thing for me to emphasize is severe symptoms, although that gets my sympathy and I I hate to see my patient having severe symptoms, it doesn't always mean there's a surgical option, but fortunately for many, there is. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's always hard when someone has severe symptoms and I don't have a good solution. Um, that's where the stimulator actually is a good option because you don't have to have anatomical localization. You just have to have an either hurts. So yeah, surgery in the case when someone's tried everything um, is actually relevant, and that's where I feel like you know my role is most appropriate in trying to help that patient.
0: Got it. So here, here we are at the crux, right? So we've, we've gone to the point where we need surgery. And I know this is, there's multiple choose your own adventures and, and, and algorithms here, but what are the most common types of back surgeries that you do or that are performed for management of back pain? Yeah. I mean, if
1: I could divide up what a spine surgery involves, there's usually one or two elements. One element is neural or spinal decompression. So there's a pinched nerve, whether it's from a herniated disc or extra from bone spurs or from ligament overgrowth, there's pinch nerves. So one element is removing the pinch, a common term is a laminectomy. Um, the second element is if there's a structural issue, like the spine is unstable or there's a deformity, then there's a second component, there's stabilization. So I feel like you could divide up most surgeries of the spine in decompression, or decompression and stabilization. I don't feel that everybody needs stabilization. Um, there are specific times where people don't need decompression and need only stabilization,
0: but most of the time it's treating both issues. Got it. And But do you see decompression more frequently than the need for stabilization?
1: I, I, yes. I feel like there's a large population of patients that have spinal stenosis or a herniated disc in the absence of instability. I do feel there are spine surgeons that feels strongly that everybody needs a fusion. I would say as an educator that you should always question, do I need a fusion and why? So I do see many um, patients as a second or third or fourth consult. I always wanna know what they've been told before because my role is not just to give my opinion, but to reconcile everyone else's opinion and make it in a way that my patient can understand. And I've seen many scenarios where the person was offered a fusion in the absence of evidence um, that it would actually work. And so in the setting of a major deformity, there's no question in my mind, you have to have a fusion and a stabilization if you have any surgery. In the setting of a mild deformity or mild laxity without instability, it becomes a judgment call. And I do think patients should research both treatments, Um, but there is a large population that just needs neural decompression without stabilization. The one caveat is sometimes when you decompress a nerve, it the patient actually develops instability and needs a fusion down the road.
0: Got it. Well, that, that's important to know for sure. It sounds like for the what we hear colloquially as slip disc, herniated disc, that's the decompression surgery. So, uh, am I correct with that? Correct. So let's take, I'm going to play the role of the patient. I'm going to ask you a barrage of questions that I'm sure you hear not less than about a thousand times a day, uh, but I want to go through them because they're important. Because these are the questions that patients and guys want to hear the answers to. So assuming we're doing a decompression surgery and we can add the stabilization later, but assuming we're talking about decompression surgery, a few questions, is there preparation involved for it uh, if I'm the patient?
1: Absolutely. I mean, for any surgery, big, small, really big. Um, we would do, uh, I would obviously do all my preoperative testing for my patients. So that might be a phone call with an anesthesiologist or an anesthesiologist nurse. It may be coming in and getting some labs and maybe coming in and getting uh, a cardiac check. So we have to do a preoperative echo. So um, we do have very um, defined algorithms. It's also a step up approach of how much we have to do before surgery. For the healthy patient with a herniated disc, we could do a surgery in a couple of weeks. For the patient with, um, on 20 medications and multiple medical comorbidities, you're not gonna wanna have that surgery in a week. You're gonna wanna have your body medically optimized before surgery. And when someone's in pain, they just wanna have it done. But I'm looking at the long-term outcome, you know, not just let's get the patient through the cycle and get them surgery. So sometimes there's quite a bit of um, preoperative testing. But in my mind, that's the only way to do it. I can't rush into a surgery if there are medical issues that would preclude success.
0: Oh, certainly, you want it better safe than sorry in in that situation for sure. If if I'm getting this type of surgery, how long would I expect it to take? That surgery to take? Yeah, so there's going to be quite a bit of
1: variability for a laminectomy. I mean, is it a one? You can actually do half of just one side, so one level, one side. You could even, someone might need a four-level decompression. So you're actually doing the same surgery on four different levels. So, I mean, a surgery on one side, on the back, could be as short as 30 minutes to an hour. Um, But there are things you could find in there that could take longer. And just since we are kind of at at that point where I want to describe, there's different ways. There's open surgery where someone makes an incision and works down to the back. There's also tubular surgery where someone puts a port Every surgery involves a skin incision, just to take away that that false idea. Some people think, oh, I want the surgery without the incision. Well, by definition, a surgery has an incision, but it could be done open with the retractors through a tube. There are even people in this country and throughout the world doing endoscopic, still a hole, but they're putting tube, you know, putting in a camera and guiding them through smaller tools. So these surgeries may have different durations, how long they take. And it sometimes has to do with just the skill level of the surgeon. They're a little bit quicker doing one way or the other, but a patient should have choices and should understand, you know, exactly what their surgeon's good at and why they're doing it that way. I'm more concerned for my patient advocacy is that the surgeon's doing what they do the best that they do and not trying a new technology on me or that
0: patient. Right. And this is not to get too far into the weeds, but with these different variations, whether open or tubular or endoscopic, uh, if I'm correct, reading you correctly, uh, it sounds like the, the differential in terms of outcomes for these different uh, approaches uh, probably is not as important as the how comfortable and facile the surgeon is with the particular procedure that is chosen. Is that a correct assumption?
1: Yes. If they said, I did it this way the last 50 times, uh, these are my outcomes, I feel confident. But I mean, the benefits of the tubular and the endoscopic is the smaller incision, in the end, if I was a patient, had a small incision, but still had the nerve issue, yeah. I'd still, I'd still I, I would rather have the open surgery. So I, again, I just want a surgeon that does good work and has done that work for a while. Um, but in general, I think all three can be successful.
0: Got it. And I'm assuming for all three, generally, a general anesthesia is used with the tube?
1: Correct. For all, in general, the general is going to be the go-to but there are patients that have so high comorbid conditions that they wouldn't tolerate general anesthesia, say a a chronic pulmonary issue, that there are um, a few people around this country and we have a few at Duke that can do awake surgery, uh, meaning they're getting sedation, but they're not getting intubation a breathing tube. So it is possible to do things awake. There is a trend in this country to try to take spine surgeries from being done in hospitals to be done in surgical centers. I think when the correct patient is selected, maybe the person without terrible medical comorbidities, it's actually a good fit. But taking the wrong patient and having a complicated surgery
0: would be something you really wouldn't want to have. That's for sure. Now, speaking of that, what, when, you, when a patient asks you about a particular surgery, what do you quote as the general risks of this type of surgery?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I like to explain things to my patients by anatomy. So, I mean, if you think about it, if you're cutting open a, the skin, the, the insides are exposed. There's always a risk of an infection. An infection in the back is not just like having a cut that gets infected. It's a deep plane. So, the spine can get infected or the nerves can get infected. That could require IV antibiotics or even another surgery. Um, anytime we're working around any bleeding, there could be a large blood clot that compresses on the nerves. A blood clot at the, you know coming out of the skin is, sounds painful, but a blood clot pushing on the nerves Is actually you know a cause for paralysis potentially so i mentioned that the neurological structures i mean i personally as a neurosurgeon as a spine surgeon uh, value every plane immensely and i definitely value the nerves but anytime we work around nerves they could i'm not be very unhappy with us working around them and it could result in paralysis or numbness or even worse pain a more severe pain so I tell people we're doing surgery, not just for pain, I value pain, we're trying to treat a neurological condition. But the end result is there could be more pain that, would you know, it doesn't actually go in the direction we want. Another one is a spinal leak. In general, nerves are, it's a sac you know, with a bunch of little nerves in their water. And sometimes in order to decompress the nerves and remove a bone spike or a ligament, we traverse that covering and there's a leak. And that can cause you know, headaches because the water gets dehydrated or a persistent leak. So those are kind of the, the high-level items that you know, definitely could occur. But I also, you know, I mentioned anesthesia. I mean, that's why we do all the preoperative testing because someone could have an anesthetic reaction. There have been cases of people having things that are less common, like blindness from spine surgery. So personally, in my consent process, I only feel comfortable operating if someone understands every risk. But I also, my job is not to give them a list. My job is to explain incidents. So in addition to giving a list, I also try to individualize and tell them they're more at risk for this or less at risk for that. But anyone fearing surgery is appropriate for fearing surgery. And I feel like the only way we can stop fearing it is to have tangible understanding of how it's going to go and what are the possibilities of how it's going to end? How is it going to change you know, one's life. So I feel like my patients are very educated before surgery. And if that takes an extra visit or extra two visits or a video conference, I think we need it. So I would encourage patients not have surgery until they feel totally comfortable with all the outcomes.
0: Got it. No, that's, that's a great advice. Um, one of the th- concerns that patients have going into surgery is how much pain they will have going out of surgery. What's to be expected after this type of decompression laminectomy in terms of post-operative pain?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, even with a small incision or a larger one, it could be an inch, it could be a centimeter. The back hurts when you manipulate those muscles. So it's not actually drilling on the bone. I mean, working on the nerves, the nerves could actually hurt. But most of what f- one feels after back surgery is actually the muscles. So that's why the tubular surgeries and the endoscopic, I mean, you try to minimize the harm or damage to the muscles, but it hurts. Personally, in my practice, I use Expiral, which is long-acting lidocaine. And potentially for 48 to 72 hours, my patients are getting um, better pain relief. But it's an adjunct. We, you know, In this day, we try to minimize the amount of narcotics people need. Many laminectomies don't even need to be prescribed. Um, you know, oxycodone or hydrocodone. Um, We really try with adjuncts like Tylenol, Toradol and other other meds to avoid um, the severe pain. But I have patients that their pain thresholds are quite different than others. And some people, you know, even what we would call a smaller spine surgery can be very painful. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I could do a surgery that involves three-level fusion with an incision this big, And and it might actually be smaller incision, but still, and it didn't hurt. That person's very functional after surgery. So I like to gauge one's own um, pain threshold because I feel like I can only describe how it's going to feel understanding that person. Something that's insightful for me is many of my patients have had prior knees done, hips, other surgeries, and I asked them, how did they react to it? Because Mm -hmm. I mean, the best example is one's
0: own personal experience. That's for sure. Recovery, time, uh, time off of work, time before going back to the gym, what does that look like? I mean,
1: every surgeon is going to say a different thing, but in general, I think six weeks is a pretty standard time point. I feel like the first few weeks, there's going to be a lot of surgical related pain. I would hope from two to six weeks, some of the surgical related pain is getting better. Some of the initial problems could take six weeks to even feel better. I try to emphasize to patients that neurological issues could take up to a year. That's not to say they will take a year, but up to a year they could continue to improve. So sometimes you're dealing with after surgery, the pain of surgery without seeing all the benefits of surgery, it may take time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think depending on what type of work one does, getting back to a desk type work or more sedentary than active, six weeks is very reasonable. Unfortunately, you know, and I have patients that have very labor driven work. That could be three months, it could be six months, it could be even more. I have patients that probably shouldn't have been doing the labor type work they were doing. And this is a branch point where they're going to have to decide what to do. So I never want to, you know, get in the way of someone's being productive and what they love to do. But there are people that are in the wrong field for their bodies. Their bodies are not, their bodies are failing them. And sometimes this is that branch point where we have to discuss.
0: You know things that are better for their body. That makes a lot of sense. And then does does given that uh, somewhat sometimes prolonged recovery, does rehabilitation play a role in that? Like rehabbing in, to some extent? Yeah, I mean some
1: patients need inpatient rehabilitation right from surgery, specifically more with the fusions and larger ones. But almost the majority of patients need some level of physical therapy, and that could appear like at six weeks. Um, I do get a question often: Why not start physical therapy right after the surgery? And in general, the pain of surgery is usually great enough that the functional improvements are actually better waiting for about four to six weeks from surgery to start. So we usually do some level of physical therapy several weeks from surgery. But if someone had a weakness or maybe new weakness after surgery or the weakness was worse, I don't know that there's a reason to put off the PT. We would start it right away. But usually PT does play a role for almost
0: everybody's recovery. Perfect. And I'm assuming that, again, if you add fusions to the picture, it just makes things a little bit more, right? Maybe a little bit more discomfort, maybe a little bit more recovery time. Obviously, the risks go up. Is that Can you see that incrementally or is it just a whole different ballgame if you're including fusion into the picture?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are different fusions. Again, there's minimally invasive. Something to mention as we talk about fusions is most fusions involve rods and screws because that's how we stabilize the spine. Most fusions involve bone graft but there is an element to spinal fusion with a cage. And patients will say, well, what's a cage? Well, cage goes into the disc space. So you're not just putting in rod and screws to stabilize the spine. You're usually taking away disc and putting in a cage. This is where it starts getting complicated. You can actually put cages in through the front at some levels. You can put cages through the side at some levels. You can put cages from the back at almost every level. So depending on how many approaches someone had, they might have a surgery that goes two different directions. My personal preference is to do everything through one direction, but I work with very, you know, very educated, wise doctors that like to go different directions. So I think it comes down to a number of levels. Someone that's having a five level fusion that is a lot bigger than a one level. I feel like the one level is not just a little bit bigger than the laminectomy. I feel like it's taking a bigger jump. A fusion is a bigger surgery. And the reason it isn't just what we do on the inside but the fact a fusion is asking the spine to fuse together and it takes nine months to 12 months to achieve a fusion. So that's why it's bigger that we can't see all the results of surgery at six weeks or 12 weeks, because we're actually asking the spine to fuse by nine months. So there's an element of healing that goes beyond the initial healing from surgery, but when it's done well in the right patient, some people feel good at six weeks and they can go back to sedentary type work, but I'm not going to allow the fusion patient to go, overdo things as much as I have control over for three, you know, beyond three months. Like I'm going to tell them to be not doing jumping from airplanes they're not doing aggressive physical activity till, till they achieve the fusion around nine months
0: to a year. Got it. No. So that, that definitely changes the picture. One last question. When somebody is looking for, a prospective surgeon. Now, obviously, they've already, let's say, gotten the diagnosis. They've been recommended to have a surgery. When they're looking for a prospective surgeon, surgeon to perform their procedure, what are they looking for? And what questions should they be asking?
1: Yeah, I mean, in general, before meeting the um, specific person, I, I don't know many people in this day and age that don't do an internet search. And I know this because most of my patients are proud to tell me they picked me. and I think to myself, I better do a really good job because You know, I have to live up to whatever they read about. But in general, I mean, we know from online reviews that uh, one person can go write a, a review that they're not happy. And so, first of all, I want patients to read a lot of reviews. At Duke, we have a star system where every clinician has like 300 reviews. I think that's a nice mechanism because a patient can see a wide range of things. But I say look for trends. So just on the online search, look for trends, look for credentials So in general, I get asked the question often, should I go to an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon? And I wish I could screen this from the rooftop right now, but I'd say go to a good spine surgeon. So Mm -hmm. there are great spine surgeons that were trained in orthopedics and there are great spine surgeons trained in neurosurgery, but there are also others. So I'm saying that once someone's been in practice for several years and they're good at what they do, the orthopedics or neurosurgery may provide that they have a special level of uh, expertise within. But I mean, it I, I don't like when people say, I'm not going to go to the orthopedic surgeon because they don't deal with nerves. No, excellent spine surgeons deal with nerves. Um, or I won't go to a neurosurgeon because they don't know deformity. No, actually, quite a few nurse surgeons are trained in deformity. So I think it's more important to look how many years they've been in practice. And I do feel like the person right just graduated from residency and they're operating. I mean, I want them to be busy. I want them to be transparent with their patients that they've only been in practice for you know a few months, but there are people that get out of training and they're just that good. I mean, they didn't need 10 years to get that good. And I've met mm-hmm. some of those individuals. And then there are some people that, you know, they'll admit that after operating for five years, they kind of figured out things, but I wouldn't trust any surgeons. So they figured it all out. I haven't figured it all out. We're learning on the spot. You're learning from each patient. So I think a number of years in practice is good. I think it's nice if you have access to people that work with that person. I mean, I've had patients tell me that they've talked to my OR nurses. I'm like, I'm glad I, you know, handle myself well in the OR and I'm well-behaved even, you know, when the person, you know, at at all levels of care is really the truth. Um, But I'd say the more resources you can check and just get an understanding of how they practice, when you actually sit and meet with the person, I'd like to know their practice patterns. So we talked about this earlier that, I don't believe any spine surgeon should be doing all fusions. So I'd like to know that they do laminectomies where appropriate. I like to know that they don't offer one treatment to everybody. You know, I'm doing a fusion on everybody at that level. No, they adjust the plan, that they have a diversity of tools, that they're not just using one tool on everybody. Um, I like to see that they care. I mean, we can sit with people and we know that they genuinely seem to care about what we're speaking about and then we can also meet with people that they seem very technical I mean I have known people that are very technical that aren't as good at the bedside manner but they're so good technically that it is worth the risk for some personally I like to look at it in a holistic way and I want to know that the the person really cares about me and my health so I think having that visit and feeling like you had adequate time a common concern I get shared by patients is that the surgeon gave me the plan and just wouldn't explain things. And I tried, I tried to ask it a different way and the doctors just wouldn't explain. And that person could be technically gifted, but you just don't know what they're thinking. So, I mean, I prefer that the patient gets all their questions answered or they get a second opinion. So if you don't feel comfortable, I mean, we work, we could spend all day talking about the healthcare system, but we have a system that as much as you can, you know, forge your copay, you can get a second opinion. And so if you're not comfortable with a spine surgeon get a second opinion. When my patients, you know, at the end of the visit still have questions, I, I recommend a second opinion. It's not, my goal is not to do their surgery. My goal is that they get better. And if they meet someone that's a better fit and they have surgery and they're better, I'm happy. I don't, you know, there's no monopoly on these surgeries. I know there's a lot of good spine surgeons. So I really emphasize the patients, get your questions answered, feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable yet, you could just ask for another visit. But if you're just not getting the answers or you're being offered a plan that doesn't jive with what you think you need,
0: just get another opinion. I think that's a a fantastic approach to things and really a patient-centered approach. Uh, Dr. Gottfried, thank you so much for your insights into back pain and its management. And before we let you go, I'm going to ask you one question completely unrelated to back pain or to medicine in general. Uh, you know, the experts we have on this, on this show, they're not only medical experts, they're also very successful people. And part of this show and the podcast is really about reaching your best life. And what I like to ask all our experts is what is your key to success and how do you manage your best life?
1: in general a very thoughtful question so i wanted to provide a thoughtful answer i mean how i define success in general is being an avid listener and trying to trying to be the best human i can to everybody with every interaction i feel like i can come to the table listen well you know if there's a service i can offer make it well thought out and you know very customized to what the person needs Um, I also feel strongly that I can learn from everyone. I don't know that everyone can learn from me. I want, I actually, for every interaction, I'm going to learn something from that person. So I really work hard to gain something and not selfishly, just as a fellow human. I mean, when someone tells me a touching story about their life and I, I became part, you know, I became a, you know, a listener to it. It's just like, that connection to that person. So when my patients tell me something about themselves and I don't just ask them all the technical, I want to know a little bit about the person. I want to know actually a lot about the person, but I realize we have to talk about things, but as I get to know my patients, I just, it supersedes anything I could offer them medically. I just feel like we're two humans connecting. And so I go out about every interaction with every person, just like I do with my patients. I just want to kind of like bond and hit it off with each person. Um, and that's how look. that's how I've been successful. I feel um, because I really listen to the patients. But when you know, that's that's what I'm thinking to myself is how can I best serve this person? How can I best understand them? How can I get to know them? That's the philosophy I use with every interaction.
0: Well, I think that's a that's a fantastic philosophy because our life is really just a a series of relationships, right? Uh, of people around us, and and how we uh, approach those relationships will really guide uh, how we see life and ourselves in it. Uh, Dr. Godfrey, thank you so much for your time again and for everyone uh, listening in and watching the show. Thank you for joining us. And remember our philosophy here at Better Man Clinics, your best life is a journey and not a destination and use every single day to just get just a little bit better. Thank you and we'll see you next time.